Father, thank you. You are good to us. Your provision is overwhelming. Your goodness is wonderful. We seek you and, and ask that you would take care of us. Thank you that you are a good Father who does. We also seek you and ask that you protect us and our families. You keep us safe uh, from the enemy who wants to hurt us, that you would stop him, keep him at bay. Uh, we pray that you would teach us, encourage us, stretch us, challenge us today from your word. Help us to have the right focus, but that we would hear your word and it would make a difference in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We're at chapter 20, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I want you to try to just visualize world peace, okay? You got, you got that? That's kind of what it looks like probably, right? <laughs> but seriously, can you imagine what the world would be like if it was ruled properly? If it was completely the entire planet was ruled properly. Now, the book of Revelation has already ruled out post-millennial utopianism. That's the idea that we will bring about world peace. Uh, it's, there's, we certainly should do everything we can to try to bring about peace. We should be at peace with everyone as much as possible and so forth. But what we've seen is that things are going to get worse before they get better. But only Jesus Christ will bring about the ultimate world peace that we so long for. Uh, when Jesus returns, there's going to be a thousand-year period of time. Now, this is after the cataclysmic apocalypse that we've been reading and studying for about a year now in this book, the book of Revelation, but Jesus is going to finally return and establish his kingdom for a thousand years of peace. Let's read our passage and see what it will be like. Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy 
are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We look at this and we say, what is this talking about? <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, this is most definitely the most controversial passage in the entire book of Revelation. Scholars vehemently disagree with each other as to what it's talking about. Okay. So I'm gonna, we're going to walk through it. I'm going to share with you some of the different ideas and, and what I think seems to me to, be, to make the most sense of it because I think it's important that we do understand this passage of Scripture, okay? So let's walk through it. He starts out in verses 1 through 3. Before the kingdom, so Jesus, if you remember, we, as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, we see trials and tribulations. Then Jesus is going to come riding on his horse <clears throat> with the saints who have already died in Christ. Then the rapture takes place. That's when the... Saints will receive new bodies, those resurrection bodies that can never be harmed anymore. The believers who are still on the earth get raptured to meet him in the air. They get their new bodies. He pours out the final bowls of wrath upon the earth, comes down, wipes out the army, casts the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and then we reign with Jesus for a thousand years on the planet. So that's what we're seeing in the big picture. But before the kingdom, so right when he comes down, before the thousand years, Satan is bound. It says a great chain is wrapped around him. He's cast into the prison, and he's bound. I want to say this. It is okay to be mad at Satan. He is the true enemy, especially as we see this description of him. Who is Satan? He's, we see four nouns used to describe him, the same four in chapter 12, verse 9, that described him. And we see him as, first of all, the dragon. It says that he is, he seized the dragon. This term in the book of Revelation is used 12 times for Satan. It's referring to how he is terrifying and cruel. You see, Satan hates everyone. He even hates his followers. He hates everyone and everything. There is no good in him at all. He is terrifying. Sometimes Christians are labeled as haters. And sometimes, tragically, it's true. So stop it. <laughs> okay? Christians are supposed to love everyone. But I do think that that's a caricature that's so, so often labeled on all Christians, and it's simply not true. We really do love people. We love people enough to share with them the truth because we don't want them to experience the harm that we're seeing that's going to come about in the book of Revelation. 
And so, but Satan, he is the true hater. First Peter 5, verse 8, it says that he roars, he roams around the earth roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to hurt us. So Satan is the ultimate hater. He is the dragon. He's described as the ancient serpent. An obvious reference to Genesis chapter 3, the original deceiver, the serpent, who deceived Adam and Eve and ushered in the fall. You see, it was sin because of the temptations that brought about the wreck of this world. This world is in the mess it's in because of sin. Many people blame God. Why did God cause this and this and this? Listen, God didn't cause it. Our sin brought it about and wrecked the world. And Satan in his deception, this ancient serpent, brought this about as well. And so we see him as the ancient serpent. He's called the devil, which literally means slanderer or accuser. He slanders especially God's people, making them look bad in the eyes of the world and so forth. But he also accuses us accuses us before ourselves. If you've ever heard that word when you're in the dark, when you're alone, and you hear that word saying, you're no good, you're rotten, you're despicable, you'll never amount to anything. That's Satan. Don't listen to him. He's an idiot. Did you see where he ends up? Okay. All right. Okay. So he is called uh, the devil, slander and accuser. He's also called Satan. This literally means the adversary. In fact, in Job and in Zechariah, when it speaks of Satan, it says, the Satan, uses the article before this noun, the Satan, meaning the adversary. He is the adversary of all people. He is our ultimate enemy. The Rolling Stones wrote a song, Sympathy for the Devil. Absolutely ludicrous. Let me tell you, though, it's got some great guitar licks, but it, but absolutely ludicrous to, 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 to say this, sympathy for the devil. He is the enemy. And this list that we're seeing describing him, this is the legal sentencing of Satan before he's cast into the prison, okay? So that is our enemy. And the question is, what happens to Satan? It says that he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And so Satan is cast into the abyss, uh, bound first so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Let me read uh, Daniel Aiken's commentary on this. He says, The angel from heaven has the key to the abyss. The key indicates authority. The abyss is mentioned seven times in Revelation. MacArthur notes that in Revelation, the abyss or pit is always a reference to the temporary place of incarceration for certain demons. The abyss is not their final place of punishment. The lake of fire is, Matthew 25, 41. Nevertheless, it is a place of torment to which the demons fear to be sent, Luke 8, 31. The angel also has in his hand a great chain. The huge chain is for a huge prisoner and carries the ideas of binding and confinement. And so he is cast into the abyss and and, uh, is 
put there for a thousand years. Now, this brings up those questions, and I know you're probably asking them already, or maybe you've, ha- you've asked them before. What's the point of this? Why the millennium? Millennium means thousand years, okay? So that's, but why this? Why not Jesus just come back and wipe out all evil? Why put him in a prison for a thousand years and then let him go again, okay? We're going to come to that, all right? I'm going to, we'll get to that in just a moment. But there are, because of that difficult question, there have three major views of the millennium have come out from Christians, okay? So let me give you the three views of the millennium. The first one is called post-millennialism. This is the idea that the church will become stronger and stronger, grow more and more throughout the world until basically everyone becomes Christian in the world. And then for a thousand years, whether that's literal or not, they disagree. But for a long period of time, they reign uh, in this bliss because there are no more unbelievers, okay? This was very popular in the Middle Ages. It was also very popular by the Reformers. They thought they were going to bring about this utopia, uh, you know, as when the church just continues to grow. They get it from primarily the kingdom parables of Jesus. When Jesus taught the parables, some of the parables, he said the kingdom of God is like... um, a grain of mustard seed that starts out small but grows into a big plant. The kingdom of God is like uh, yeast put in the dough, and it permeates the whole dough. Okay, So they use those parables and say that's what it must be referring to. Uh, today, very few conservative Christians hold to this. There's basically one group called the Reconstructionists, and and, and uh, But other than that, really only liberals embrace this idea. And they think that by politics and education, because human beings are basically good, we can bring about this peace and utopia on the earth. What we've been seeing in the book of Revelation seems to me to completely contradict this idea. We've been seeing that it's just going to get worse and worse, culminating in the final battle and then Jesus brings about the peace. And so it seems that post-millennialism, once again, is not held by very many today in the church. Uh, the second view is amillennialism. Now, this has become popular, especially among Reformed groups, but the, uh, this is the idea that there isn't a millennium, a literal thousand years, that it's just a... Uh, a general time period that's actually taking place now. They believe the millennium started when Jesus died and rose again from the dead, and it will be completed when he comes back. And so that time period is is considered in some sense the millennium where Satan is bound in the lives of believers. And so we can now share our faith to the nations and people can be saved. And so they're they, and the reasons why they hold to this, they, first of all, they will appeal to the genre of Revelation. It's a, that you're not supposed to take it literally, they say. And then also they say that it seems to not have any chronological significance. So chapter 20 can jump back behind chapter 19, and there's no problem there. Uh, they would also argue uh, that it doesn't make any sense. Why? And you've asked the question already, right? Why would, why would Jesus do this? Why, what's the point of the thousand years? I'm going to get to that. 
I promise, right? Okay. But because they don't understand it, they say it must not be true. And by the way, that personally is not a very good reason for denying something in Scripture. If this is God's plan, then it's God's plan, and he must know what he's doing. I figure, you know, God's plan is probably the best plan. But at any rate, that's one of the arguments. They say it's the only passage in the Scriptures that talk about this thousand years. Now, it is the only passage that mentions a thousand-year period, a millennium. So they are correct on that. Uh, But there are several Old Testament passages that do seem to point to this time period of Jesus reigning on the earth. So that's the all-millennial perspective. And I'm I've been arguing throughout the scripture, throughout the, the book here, a premillennial view. This is by, by far the most popular view among Christians uh, today, at least uh, evangelical Christians, I should say. And that is that the millennium doesn't happen until after you have the tri- seven year tribulation period, then the defeat of the, the beast and the Antichrist. Uh, the beast and the false prophet, and they're cast into the lake of fire, and then the, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and we reign for a thousand years. Okay, that's the premillennial view. It seems to me to be the most natural reading of the passage. After you read, uh, you know, chapter 19 finishes, and then the angel comes, binds Satan for a thousand years, then it says we reign for a thousand years, he's then let loose at the end, and then wiped out and thrown into the lake of fire. It seems like that's the, the, the natural reading of the passage backs up a premillennial view. And by the way, it says, it doesn't say he's bound in the hearts of believers. It says specifically, verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So you have to say, if it's all millennial, you have to say, He's not deceiving the nations anymore. And I'm sorry, he is. I mean, just look around you. Don't you think the nations are being deceived by Satan right now? How could we say he's not (laughs) deceiving them? Of course he is. But there's going to be a time, a thousand-year time period, where he's not going to be able to deceive the nations. It's going to be an incredible time, but it is in the future. Uh, and I would also argue from Old Testament passages, I don't have time to do, go into this, but a future messianic reign of peace is predicted. God is not finished with Israel yet, and so we see that uh, is going to take place during this time period. And also Acts 1, verse 6. Look at Acts 1, 6. Okay? This is a passage that's a reference to after Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, He spends 40 days, before he ascends into heaven, he spends 40 days speaking to his disciples. Verse 3 says, specifically, for 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So, could you imagine going to school for 40 days with Jesus? And he's teaching you about the kingdom of God, okay? Any question you might ask, there you have it, okay? And he thoroughly equips them. And then they ask this question in verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? His answer is, 
It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But he doesn't say, you dummies, you didn't get it. I'm not doing that stuff anymore. It's just going to be a kingdom for everybody, and there's not going to be any of this. No, he's clearly agreeing with them. Yes, there's going to be a time where he restores the kingdom to Israel. They're going to reign in their land. They're going to be there. And and so forth, but it's, they just don't know when it's going to happen. It's not for them to know, okay? That's all. So it seems to me that at that point, he could have corrected them and said something else. It all seems to flow in this idea that there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign uh, of Christ on this planet, okay? So uh, that's the premillennial view, and that's what we're going to go with for now, but you get to choose whatever you want to do, okay? Verses 4 through 6, we see then during the kingdom, during that thousand-year period, the saints are going to reign, okay? He, he actually specifically mentions two groups of saints here. And by the way, when I say saint, I don't mean an elite group of Christians. I mean all Christians. The Bible only and always uses this phrase to refer to all Christians, not just some Christians, okay? So that when I say saints, you can just uh, substitute that with true believers in Christ, okay? But there seems to be two groups mentioned here. Look at what it says, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. So we have that group. And then he says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. Okay, so we're gonna, we have these two groups. These two groups are going to reign with Christ. The first group is a reference to believers given authority to judge. And, uh, and, and we get this from the Scriptures. Okay, Matthew 19, 28 specifically says... To the 12 apostles, Jesus said, you will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so he specifically tells them that. So obviously Jesus believed that in the end, the 12 tribes of Israel are still going to be around. God still has a plan and purpose for Israel, but the the apostles are going to rule over them. But then look at Revelation 2, verse 26. Here he refers to all the saints. This is a general principle. It's a letter specifically to, um, let's see, where was I at? 226, I'm saying that's the wrong verse. Okay, there we are. It's a letter uh, specifically to the church in Thyatira at that time period, but then he gives this general principle. He says this, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. okay. So, and by the way, this is a reference to all true believers. All true believers will be victorious and do his will to the end. Now, we're not perfect, but we will continue to follow him. That's the reference there. And he will give us authority over the nations. And so, somehow, believers are given authority to judge the nations. Chapter 5, verse 10 brings the same idea out as well, okay? Then he brings out this second group, which is still, you know, the believers, true believers. But he's, I think he's specifically focusing on them because of what they went through. And that's the martyrs during the tribulation period. See how they're described again. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. 
and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Notice, the thousand years comes after the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all that stuff. They don't worship him, so then the thousand years. This verse here, to me, completely destroys the post-millennial and non-millennial perspectives. Okay, but at any rate, okay, here they are, these specific ones who are martyred, martyred during the tribulation period. They're also going to reign with Christ. By the way, it says specifically that they were beheaded. Any of you remember the 70s? Raise your hand if you remember the 70s. Some of you weren't, many of you were not born yet, but some of us remember the 70s, okay? If you were a Christian especially, the 70s were awesome. It was the Jesus movement going on. That was the greatest revival that ever took place in the United States. By far, more Christians became Christians at that time than any other time during the history of the United States. So, I mean, it was incredible. You literally, you just, you know, say Jesus to somebody and they would trust in Christ. I mean, it was just like the fruit was so ripe. It was an amazing time period, okay? Well, it was wonderful. But, but everybody also had this sense that Jesus was coming back anytime. And they longed for his coming back. I mean, I remember that. I, me too. You know, it's just like, I think he's coming back any day. I had to wonder, you know, should I get married? I mean, this is before we got married. But uh, should I get married? Because we, we, a bunch of us, we had this idea, bachelors to the rapture. You know, we were just like, you know, that, that, was, a, that was our thinking, okay? You know, just, just because it was, the time was so soon. But we had that expectancy for that, you know. And I think that's healthy. When the church gets on fire, it naturally begins to focus on when Jesus is going to come back because we want him to come back. And so, but anyway, we read the books, you know, Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth. And, but we began looking at this passage, you know, beheaded. And, so, and, and many people said, well, maybe they're going to bring back the guillotine. I mean, that's, that's what we thought, you know, right? You know, how are they going to do this beheading thing? Now, we didn't even think about this. With ISIS, that's what they're doing. So we can see that this, that could be the way this happens. In fact, they're just following their book. In the Quran, it specifically says, this is Surah 8, verse 12, God revealed his will to the angels, saying, I shall be with you. Give courage to the believers. I shall cast terror into the hearts of the infidels. Strike off their heads. Strike off the very tips of their fingers. That was because they defied God and his apostles, referring to Muhammad. He that defies God and his apostles shall be sternly punished by God. We said to them, taste this, the scourge of the fire awaits the unbelievers. And so they're actually told this. Now, I thank the Lord that most Muslims don't believe that or follow this, okay? I'm happy for that. I hope all Muslims completely reject this verse. But this is what their book tells them to do. So we can probably expect this to simply happen more, not less, uh, you know, as the end comes. And so we see here, though, that somehow the martyrs, this is what's going to happen to them. They are beheaded. But God has not left them. He specially loves them and has a place and a plan for them. So he's pointing them out in this, that they're going to reign with Christ during this thousand-year reign, okay? But then you think, okay, well, who are they going to rule? Isn't it just going to be Christians? And as we've been seeing, my answer is no. 
there are going to be many unbelievers who enter into the millennial reign. And you say, well, how does that work out? What we've been seeing is, if you remember back in chapter 19, verse 15, it says Jesus will rule them with an iron scepter. That when he comes back, now obviously he's not referring to believers with an iron scepter. You know, that's a, you know, he's referring to the unbelievers. He's going to rule them. So there are going to be many unbelievers still living on the planet during the millennial reign. We see this in verses 19 through 21. This describes how God kills the beast and the false prophet, casts them into the lake of fire, and kills the soldiers, but it doesn't say he kills everybody, okay? So we also see passages in the, in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, in my opinion, is a reference to the millennial kingdom because it speaks of how if a person only lives to be 100 years old, they will, that will be considered a short life, but notice, people are dying during this period. So there are going to be people who are living during this period and dying during this period. But seemingly, 100 years is a short life. Obviously, not now, right? Okay, so we see this, this reference. Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. Speaks of, we read that a couple weeks ago, where it speaks of how during this period... Uh, Everyone from the planet will have to go to Jerusalem for, the, for one of the feasts. And if a group doesn't go for the feast, they, their land will be punished. So clearly it must be re- re- referring to those who disobey. So there are going to be some on the planet during this time. And so what I'm arguing is, is that there's going to be some who enter into this millennial period that aren't the believers. Remember the believers, if you had already died, you're coming with Jesus, you get your new resurrection body. If you are living on the planet at the rapture, you rapture up to meet him, you get your resurrection body. The true believers, we will have resurrection bodies, we will reign with Jesus over the planet, but the unbelievers don't have resurrection bodies, they still will continue to have children and so forth and live for this thousand year period and have opportunities to put their trust in Christ. Uh, We'll get to that later in just a moment, but I want to finish this this section, first of all, because then we see it end with the saints experiencing the fifth blessing, okay? The saints, by the way, in the book of Revelation, as we've been seeing, there are five or seven blessings, the seven beatitudes, much like the beatitudes found in the gospel of Matthew. But here is the fifth beatitude or fifth blessing, and he specifically says, verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we see this mentioning of a first and a second resurrection. We see a a first and a second death. And what is that, that referring to? The blessing for God's people is that we will experience the first resurrection. Okay, that's the resurrection where if you're already dead, you, you get the new resurrection body when Jesus comes back, and if you're still alive, you get the resurrection body. That's the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, okay? So there's that, 
that, that first resurrection. Blessed are those who are a part of that because they won't take part in the second death. And here's a, here's a phrase you know, that's good to, good to think about, okay? If you're born twice, you only die once. If you're born only once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you know, the physical birth is the first birth, but then the spiritual birth, birth, being born again. Jesus said very clearly, John 3, 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, this kingdom that he's talking about. You have to be born again. Where If you are born again, you then see the kingdom of God and experience the kingdom of God in all its fullness, unless you're born again. So you have to be born again, that second birth. Many people think that they were born a Christian or they had some water sprinkled on them or whatever. You know, that makes them a Christian. No, you have to personally repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. You're outwardly expressing that in baptism. That's, and following Jesus, that's the born-again believer, okay? So the born-again believers, according to this, they are born twice, but they only die once. The second death is a reference to the lake of fire, which we'll get to, we'll speak more of next week when we talk about the great white throne judgment, okay? So here we see this blessing of the saints. Um, It is going to be, by the way, we get new bodies. Everybody's going, yeah, you know, the older people, right? You know, we're like, well, yeah. Okay, but listen, need to understand this. The physical realm is not bad. That's new age belief and Hinduism and other beliefs. The physical realm, according to the Bible, is good. When God created the universe, he said it is good. In fact, we were made to be both physical and spiritual. Those who have already died and are true believers and are in heaven, okay, they don't have a body yet. They do feel incomplete. They long for this day when they will receive their spirit, their body as well because we were made to be both physical and spiritual beings. And, uh, and so that's what we long for. But someday we're going to experience this, this incredible millennial period where Jesus is reigning. Everything's going great. Uh, we have these new bodies. Where it's just going to be a kick. Okay, I mean, I can't describe it, you know, the way it's going to be. The Bible says it's indescribable peace, according to Isaiah 32, 17. No more stress, no more worries. The Bible says it will be euphoric joy in chapter 60, Isaiah 61, verse 3. Um, Elizabeth and I, our song is What a Wonderful World. You remember that song? The skies are blue, the clouds are white. I'm not going to sing it, okay? But, but what a wonderful world. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a, I mean, but see, that's not actually going to happen until Jesus comes back. Now, I, once again, I don't blame people longing for peace and singing songs like that and wanting and trying to do it. But listen, people, this world is not our home. This is not going to happen until Jesus comes back. That's what we long for, what we look to. And it is going to be so amazing, this blessing that we get to receive because of this. Now, our passage finishes in verses 7 through 10. 
after the kingdom, okay? At the end of the thousand-year reign, the sinners will be defeated. Look what it says. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Uh, This is actually not the best translation when it says had been thrown. CSB and ESV says where the beast and false prophet are. It's actually in the Greek. It's the present tense. So it should be are where the beast and false prophet are. In other words, they're already there a thousand years ago, right? Now they're getting thrown. Satan's getting thrown in there. Uh, And then it says they, meaning everybody who was thrown in there, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Daniel Aiken describes this. He says, Satan is released from his prison, verse 7. Immediately he goes out with a twofold agenda to deceive the nations and to gather a great army to war against the Lord. Gog and Magog is a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Here the phrase stands for the enemies of God among the nations of the world. They march on the beloved city, the city of Jerusalem, where King Jesus reigns over his worldwide kingdom. Before they can achieve their goal, however, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. In a flash, in a moment, the final battle is over. An army like the sand of the sea is vaporized instantly. Like Armageddon a thousand years earlier, the battle will in reality be an execution. Our text ends with Satan finally receiving his just reward. He is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. There, this unholy trinity's eternal destiny is to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Their just judgment is literal. It is eternal. No reprieve, no relief, no second chance, no end. They will be defeated. This is Gog and Magog. Gog is a reference uh, to the people, Magog is the area. When you, this is, as he mentioned, uh, a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you study Ezekiel 37 through 39, what you discover is in chapter 37, that's that passage that talks about how God says, speak and the bones are going to come to life. Okay, right? And all the, then a great army of Israel takes place, but they're not alive. And he says, now breathe. And they breathe the, his breath and they receive the spirit of God in them. I believe that's a clear reference to God's plan for Israel. There's two stages. First, they come back to their nation as a people. But then second, they receive the Holy Spirit. They become Christians. They embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in this seven-year time period, okay? And they're going to live for him. And, that, and so then 38 and 39, we see Gog and Magog, uh, a reference to the perennial enemy of the people of God, finally and ultimately destroyed along with Satan. Magog, if you look at back in Ezekiel, it describes it, uh, it mentions Persia and some other areas, so it seems to be the area of the greater Middle Eastern area. 
But we see here that the ultimate enemy will be destroyed and defeated. Now that brings up the question again, why the millennium? (laughs) What's the point? Why don't I just wipe them out in the first place? What's the point of this thousand years? I want to suggest three reasons that I think are good reasons why God knows what he's doing, okay? And here is the reasons. First of all, to reveal how humans should have run the world. You see, in Genesis 1.28, God commissioned human beings to be over the planet. We were supposed to rule over it and take care of it. And we have done a very poor job. We've blown it, okay? And Jesus is going to show us, here's how you could have done it. Here's how you should have done it. Here's how it's going to be done. And he's going to rule for a thousand years. And we're going to see how this planet could have been run and how wonderful it could have been even in our lives. But it isn't because of our sinful hearts. And that brings us to the second one. It reveals the human heart. You see, you wonder, for a thousand years they reign with Jesus, and yet this large multitude at the end listened to Satan. And it's because they sinned even without the temptations of Satan. We can't blame the devil. Who was the old comedian? The devil made me do it. Okay. Okay. We can't. Satan certainly tempts us, but even when he's taken out of the picture, people are going to sin. And so it reveals the human heart. Our hearts that rebel against God, that's why the world's in the mess that it's in. And so this time period is going to reveal that it really is the human heart that is the problem, and therefore we need a heart transplant that takes place when you're born again. And then third, to make more opportunity for salvation. I believe that that... Now, for all intents and purposes, most scholars think that at least three-fourths of the planet are destroyed by all of these plagues and so forth that we see taking place in the book of Revelation. So the population is going to be diminished quite considerably. But that group of people are going to enter into the millennial period, and they're going to live for a 1,000 years. And they're going to have children. And it's going to be in a time where there's peace, where everything's going great. And they're going to, in my opinion, most of them naturally will say yes to Jesus. Why wouldn't they? When they see Jesus reigning and they say, yes, I I want that. And they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids. And in over a thousand year period in a time of bliss like this, population of the world could become 30, 40, 50 billion people. We don't know. It could become massive. And most of them, now a large number, but it doesn't say the majority. It just says a large number at the end are going to follow Satan. But it seems to me that a, a much larger number would perhaps trust in Christ. And if that's the case, by the way, this is mercy, isn't it? He once again gives them another opportunity to say yes to Jesus. But but think about this. If I'm right about this, then that means overall more people will be followers of God, followers of Christ, than those who go to hell. Jesus is right that in this age, few follow him. But in the grand perspective, if 40 billion say yes to Jesus during the millennial period, and we already have the small number that has said yes to him throughout the centuries now, plus add on to that the fact that all babies who die go to heaven, right? 
all miscarriages, you know, all abortions. All those children go to, you put all that together, more people are going to make it into the kingdom than not. And this, doesn't that sound like something God would do? I mean, I, so, so anyway, but that's my theory, all right? But I do believe that a, a part of this is to make more opportunities for salvation. The kingdom of God, not just in part. Right now, we can experience the kingdom of God in part. Jesus is left, the king is left, but he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. So we can experience the kingdom of God in part. See the miraculous at times, see salvations at times, but also experience persecution and sorrow and suffering. But then, no more of that. Absolute bliss, fully experienced. Listen, this is our hope. Not now. So many people live for happiness. If you ask them what is the most important thing, my happiness is what their most important thing in life is. And they're missing it. Because the Bible says this world is not our home. This world right now is not the way it's meant to be. We long for the new world to come. That's our hope. That kingdom to come is what we look for. And that's when we will truly experience the greatest happiness anyway in this life in the midst of suffering and persecution. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's very easy for us because of our selfish nature to focus on ourselves. And we want to be happy. And like little children, sometimes we just demand things. And, and so we apologize. Please forgive us. Help us to always have our focus on you, on your kingdom. That right now we're here to help advance your kingdom. That, that we're not here for our own personal happiness right now. But above all else, we want to see as many people as possible miss the, the judgment to come and be able to experience this kingdom to come. So use us now. Help each of us. You know, we get sidetracked. We confess. So help us to get our focus back on you and to hear from you and to find out what is my place. I think of Jonathan. I want to go with him, Lord. <laughs> you've got a plan for each and every one of us please inspire us help us to see what that is and to fully and completely devote our lives to your glory and your kingdom as we long for this day to come this day when Jesus comes back and we get to see you face to face oh what a day that will be and if there's anyone here who doesn't know you Lord maybe know about you, but they're outside of the kingdom, please draw them in. Help them to see that they can even today put their trust in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.